and Mo Farah's coming down the straightway and he's going to be attacked by by Deborah Maskell and Mo Farah's got the double! He's the Olympic champion again! For those of you that don't know, that was Mo Farah winning the 5,000 metres, giving him the double gold medal back in London 2012. So Archie, you, you count yourself as a bit of a runner these days, don't you? I mean, I would, I've been on the odd run, but uh, nothing compared to the speeds of uh, Mo Farah. I think I certainly remember where I was. Well, um, well, well, well I, I was definitely not comparing you to Mo Farah. I was just saying you like to run. <laughs> Yeah, I do, I do like to run. Out of your mind. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to be running in the next Olympics at all. But yeah, no. Obviously, Mo Farah was like, what? What an athlete! I mean, he, the man is a man's a freak, and he can have double Olympic gold medal at our home London 2012 Olympics. It was a proper like, where were you kind of moment. This week on the S Word podcast, we are incredibly fortunate to welcome none other than Andy Gute himself. We're going to be talking to Andy about changing room cultures back in the day, rugby initiations, England's hopes for the 2023 World Cup, ring fencing the Premiership, whether Six Nations relegation and promotion could be an option, and finally, advice for the youngsters out there of how to make it in the big city. So welcome, Andy, to the S Word podcast. How are you doing? And can you just give the listeners a little introduction about what you've been doing the last couple of weeks? Yeah, uh, great to be on here, first and foremost. So thanks for having me. Last few weeks, all been a bit of a blur, really. And people keep saying the last few weeks, but it's been, it seems like the last couple of months, three months. How long is it? It's crazy, isn't it? How <laughs> it's about two and a half months now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in lockdown for. I'm very lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at it, to be at home with, we've got two and a half year old twins girls who are it's amazing and we're very lucky to be spending a lot of time with them and it's time we're never going to get again once the world gets back to some form of new normal but also there's other days when you're tearing your hair out and luckily for the listeners my hair has grown back I had a hair transplant but it's grown back and I can't pull it out too hard because uh, I don't want to be bold again but yeah I mean listen it's it's a different challenge for everyone I've, I've loved working from home I work in foreign exchange as well as rugby media stuff now so I'm doing my podcast working for Money Corp from home and balancing all that around sort of home life, looking after the twins with the missus and, you know, just keeping them safe and well, really, because 24-7 at home, they're trying to find things to break and hurt themselves with, uh, jump, jumping off the climbing frames and all that stuff. So it's, you can't take your eyes off them, but it's been great. You know, some people have really reveled in this, I suppose, and, and enjoyed their time and others have found it difficult. And, I've, you know, both for me, I'll be, I'll be very honest, some days are pretty tough. Some days are really awesome, and uh, you know I'm also glad the golf courses have reopened again, so I can get the sticks out and go and uh, hit a few balls. Uh, so the golf course being open, that's been a, a nice little um, break for a couple of hours to get out. We're both keen golfers, and I also yeah. heard that you've ordered a ordered a new bike. So uh, <laughs> so um, there are definitely ways to kind of have a couple of hours out and getting some exercise. Yeah, I mean it's it's important that you do. I mean we we first started lockdown, and our, it was when you could go out for one exercise daily uh, and we'd so I'd be working from home and, and I, we'd go out at about five o'clock for a long walk with the girls luckily you know we've got a reasonable sized garden here and the weather's been amazing so we spent a lot of time at the start of it in the in the garden for the first and, and majority of the day and then go for a walk about five o'clock as the exercise and as everything has ease I suppose you're looking for more things to entertain yourself with and I ordered a bike two weeks ago as you probably know from my career fitness wasn't one of my favorite things um, <laughs> but uh, yeah I mean I've ordered a bike and unfortunately it still hasn't arrived two weeks later I'm still waiting for it but I've got all the lycra I've got all the gear but no idea good um, good I, I was actually listening on your, ready to go on your, on your recent podcast you were you were talking about the whether or not the effectiveness of chamois cream works or not I would actually got some advice for you as I, I did a I did a 220-kilometre cycle on Friday for charity. And 220 I'd, kilometers. Yeah, it was about about ten hours in the saddle. So, it doesn't uh, sound much, does it? I know. <laughs> wow, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, so, um, and I, I I'd never used this chamois cream before, but the guy who did the final 100 kilometers with me, he bought it along, and it was an absolute game changer. And for those oh, really? listeners, those who listeners who don't know, um, get on a bike for a couple of hours, and then you'll suddenly realise something's missing, and uh, for the comfort point of view. So I would, yeah, yeah, highly recommend it for the when the bike finally arrives. <laughs> 
Well, I've ordered some now, so uh, yeah, <laughs> good, I'll, def- good, I'll definitely good. be using it. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. But yeah, can we get, get speak a little bit about your um, your career itself? I mean, you um, joined uh, the Leicester Tigers back in 1998, and I'm I'd love to know a little bit about what it was like to join as such a young kid in quite a potentially intimidating squad with the likes of Martin Johnson, Ben Kay, Neil Back, Austin Healy, Lewis Moody, Richard Cockrell, Graham Roundtree. Like these, these were like established stars like were you intimidated as a young kid joining and you won four consecutive premiership titles as well as some Heineken Cups I mean what was that first couple of years like? Um, it was crazy really so I left school at 18 did my A-levels and I'd, I'd agreed to sign for Leicester Tigers and do a degree at Loughborough University in tandem with each other and uh, I, I always remember my very first day at Leicester Tigers and, and as an 18 year old kid you think it's the dream you cannot wait it's like Christmas every day when you, the first day of training approaches and you're thinking I'm going to start I've signed a professional contract I'm going into pre-season training it's going to be unbelievable I'm going to be playing with some of those names you, you mentioned and and as it sort of got closer I remember driving to the training ground for the first time and excitement turned to trepidation and fear. And you pulled into the car park and you don't really know anyone. There's, there was one of the lad that I knew at the time who I'd played England schools rugby with who, who was doing the same as me, joining at the same time. So we had each other. But I'd arrived on the first morning super early, trying to be really keen. It was a nine o'clock start and I was there at eight o'clock. So I walked in. The old training ground at Leicester, there was two changing rooms. So we went in and I got shown the changing rooms and uh, Dean Richards came met me, so there's a changing rooms, take your pick. There's two changing rooms, so there's two doors, A and B. And I just, you know, being a young, naive kid, I just took the left one, went in A, and off you go. I opened the door, walked in, saw Darren Garforth putting his, G- uh, putting his uh, jockstrap on in the corner. Neil Back was there as well, and I'm looking around, I'm like, wow. Now the heart was really pumping, and, and I'm seeing these legends, what I considered legends of the game, uh, and people I'd watched at school growing up, and all this and, and and I started to really, really sort of panic because I could see them all looking at me. Mm. And I put my bag down on the side and and sat there and I'd, I started to get my kit out and, and hang my t-shirt up and and they just there was, there was a few giggles around the change room and I'm like 18 year old kid here with grown men who are you know British Lions international legends and all this stuff and um, and I said oh I looked at Darren Garforth and I said hello mate I'm Andy nice to meet you went over and shook his hand he said all right mate. That was it. Didn't give me any <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's good. Uh, then Graham Roundtree was uh, next to him. So I went over, shook his hand. I said, hi, Graham. Really nice to meet you. He's like, don't call me Graham. Call me Wig. That was his nickname, Wig. I'm like, okay, sorry. Uh, hi, Wig. He said, uh, just a word of advice though, mate. I said, yeah. He said, uh, where you put your bag and where you started to get changed, that's Martin Johnson's spot. <laughs> he said, I think you'll find the best place for you is next door with the rest of the kids. Um, so, so I turned around. And at this point, I was, you know, it was the fear grew even more. And I was, you know, for want of a better expression, shitting myself. Walked back to my bag, put my T-shirt back on, put it in my bag, picked my bag up and walked to the changing room where I didn't know anyone because they were all a bunch of kids like myself. So, or they were the lesser known players. It turns out those lesser known players at the time were the likes of Jordan Murphy, Paul Gustard, uh, Leon Lloyd, you know, the younger generation as opposed to the older generation. And there was very much that hierarchy at Leicester and you had to earn your respect. And, and, and they were, it's, you went in there and, and you trained hard and you worked hard uh, to earn your stripes and earn the respect of those elder players who they wouldn't tell you they respected you to start off with and they wouldn't give you that feeling of acceptance because they wanted you to earn it, but they did because we were all part of a team, but it was, you had to earn your stripes and day one for me got off to a bad start by putting my bag where Jono was meant to be changing. <laughs> but thank God he didn't walk in because he'd have just clipped me around the ear and sent me out on my way. But um, yeah, it was an interesting start. And then obviously had a, you know, a very successful four years there to start off with. And, you know, just to get involved with those guys and training with them, you're in awe of them. You really are because you're an 18 year old kid that's just finished your A-levels and you're training with, you know, Martin Johnson, the British Lions captain. I've watched the 97 Lions tour, living with the Lions and all that stuff. You sit there and a year later, you're pinching yourself because you're passing him the ball and you then get nervous about passing the ball because if he drops it, you say, sorry, because it must be my fault. And you know, it, it was it was surreal, really. The best sort of baptism of fire was that day one where you learn something pretty quickly and then you try and sort of gain the respect of those older boys as you, by performing on the field. 
So yeah, a, a fairly tough start to the career. So you've now played for Leicester, Saracens, Wasp, Newcastle, many clubs. Which club would you say has the best culture that you've played for? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a tough question as well, actually, because I've, I've I really enjoyed every club I was at for various different reasons. And obviously, you know, the game changed massively over my 18 years as a professional rugby player. I mean, I started in 98, finished in 2016, and the game was completely different entity at the end of my career to the start. Now, the best culture, ultimately, I think I, I played in was that Leicester Tigers culture of... Winning you know, culture. Yeah, well, the, the early era of, of 98 to 2002 and then beyond that, a lot of it was was built on working hard together as a team. And it was the days really when a team bonding session, yeah, we'd be, we had some brutal, brutal training sessions on a Tuesday uh, afternoon and then a Wednesday morning where literally it was like a war zone. We'd be fighting each other. There'd be mass brawls, you know, and, and a lot of those training sessions were harder than actual fixtures itself and playing games on a Saturday. And then as soon as you walk off the training field, you know, I've seen fights between a lot of, you know, Martin Johnson knocked Lewis Moody out in training. Lewis Moody, you know, eventually comes around, gets up in the change rooms and we're all laughing at Lewis and he's laughing at himself as well for doing something <laughs> stupid. And then Jono clipping him and he's, he's out cold on the floor. So, there were, you know, in terms of a culture, there was a lot of, things that went on in those days that you wouldn't get away with now necessarily in terms of the antics at training because the game has moved on. It's so professional now. There's, there's, there's no sort of, there's very little fighting in training to earn your you, you shirt. It's more of a train harder than your opposite number to, to earn your shirt. Whereas, you know, the old mentality at Leicester back in the day and the, win, the culture that was there was if you're not in that starting team, fight with the guy that's got your shirt that you want to, to either win the jersey off him or gain the respect of everyone that you're not just happy being second choice. And sometimes that's built over. But we were a very tight bunch. You know, we used to socialise a lot together. And ultimately now the socialising that we used to, to, to end up doing, you wouldn't be able to do in the professional game now because they're, they're <laughs> serious athletes that count every calorie that goes into their body. And, and I, I think if you look back, we weren't that sort of those characters, but we had a lot of fun off the field and, and, and that came from training so hard on the field uh, and being ruthless and, and effective on match day that you were allowed to celebrate off it as well. And, and I think with the onset professionalism, that's something that I feel a little bit sad about the fact that guys can't bond as much as you know, social media has come into it. Now, if some of the social media platforms were around in the late nineties, early noughties, yeah, I'm not too sure some <laughs> <laughs> of us would be held in the, the sort of esteem that the, those guys are he- held in, I suppose. Uh, can you just like um, step into some of those, those maybe kind of socialising experiences? We had um, Don Wardock on, the um, the Wasp player last week, and he said the likes of Paul Sackey, even though when Wasps were winning their European and Premiership titles, there's a work hard, play hard, that like kind of culture. And like he was saying how they celebrate just hard after a win. Like how you as a, let's say, a 20-year-old winning a Heineken Cup in the Leicester Tigers team with all your legends, with all your heroes, sorry. Like, can you give a little insight about how, what a night, how a night would evolve? Uh, well, there's two things, really. So the, the, one of my lasting memories, I always enjoyed, we, we love playing away from home. And you love playing at home, but winning away from home is extra special as well because there's always an expectation when we were playing at Welford Road that we should win. It's our home patch. We were very successful there. And it became... You know, you love playing there, but winning away from home with a siege mentality kind of thing, you know, especially down at somewhere like Gloucester or wherever, there was a, there was always a bit of a, a routine afterwards when you got an away win. Jono was captain and, and the routine started off with Jono would know and Dean Richards as head coach, they'd both know where the best chip shop would be in <laughs> close proximity to the ground. Now, and we're talking about how the game's changed. So we played Gloucester away. We'd always, whenever we won, we'd always go to have our post-match meal uh, with the opposition, you know, see family and friends. And then we'd head over to the pub, which uh, is literally opposite King's Home. And we'd walk in there as, as the whole squad. All the Gloucester fans are there. And it was the days of, you know, you'd get a bit of a jeer on the way in, but it was all good friendly banter. And we'd start to sit there and have a couple of pints as a team. And then we'd get on the bus and Dino had already told the bus driver where the the, the fish and chip shop was so we'd go there and he'd already pre-ordered 35 fish and chips for everyone on the bus only five of those portions were mine by the way but um, <laughs> there, were, there, were, there was one for everyone but and that's where again so Jono would sit at the back seat 
middle of the back seat. There'd be beers on the bus. We've ordered these 35 fish and chips. <laughs> John, I would get the youngest player, which invariably was myself. <laughs> and he'd give me the money and say, go and get it all. So I'd, get, I'd trudge off the bus. I'd try and take a couple of other young kids with me. We'd walk back on with 35 fish and chips. Dish them out to all the senior players. Dish them out to everyone. John, I sometimes asked for the change. Sometimes he let me keep it, which was nice. Um, <laughs> depends on how well I played that day, whether he, he was really generous. Um, we'd eat the fish and chips on the way back. And then we stop off at another pub, but invariably there was a game that the old boys used to love playing, and it's it goes down in, in sort of folklore at Leicester. It was take the back seat, basically. We've all been on, on buses, whether it's at school or wherever, you know, rugby teams now. And it was a game of take the the back seat. So they had the hardest players ever in on the back seat, and they would an initiation was everyone had to have an attempt at some point in their career to go and get your bum on the back seat. And if you got your bum on the back seat, you could always sit there whenever you wanted. You'd get invited to the back, but you had to take whatever punishment came on the way. So, <laughs> you know, every every young player, when their first game, they have to, if we win away from home, they have to have a go. So you've got Jono sat in the middle. You had Darren Garforth on one side of him. You had Graham Roundtree on the other side of him. You had Neil Back just nearby, Martin Corrie on the back seat as well. And you had to fight your way to the back of the bus <laughs> taking whatever punishment there was on the way, whether it was punches to the ribs. The only rule originally was no punches to the face. So it was all back slaps originally. It was wedgies. It was punches to the ribs and you know all this stuff. And obviously it escalates, right? So the dumb thing to do is go on your own. What you want to try and do, and, and a few of us tried this, was take about four or five of you. So one of you's got more of a chance of getting there. And you take the biggest beatings you've ever had in your life. You had your pants ripped around your head, your shirt's been ripped off, you've got back slaps everywhere, and you're thinking, well, I'm doing this. But you kind of earn a bit of respect that way, just by taking a beating, which sounds pretty bad. Those sort of memories of team bonding and, and, and earning respect are what has stuck with me for a long time. And um, the good times around winning away games, you always got fish and chips, you always had a few beers on the way back. And that invariably there ended up being a fight at the back of the bus. So, you know, I remember those times with very fond memories. If you tried to do that now, there'd be, I'm, I'm sure it'd be all over, so, yeah, it'd be all over social media. Yes. And the amount of times it came to blows. And I, I remember our Leicester doctor, who was a brilliant bloke. He said to me one day, he said, I hate away games. I said, why do you hate away games? He said, I always have to stitch up more people when we get back to Welford Road. <laughs> after the fights on the bus than I'd do in a rugby game. So it, for him, he was always working overtime. But it was, you know, it was all meant in, in good fun and no one took it in a, any other way apart from it's team bonded. And, you know, some, some teams go out and drink a lot together. We drank together, but on a bus and start end up fighting invariably, which was um, part hmm. of the Leicester culture, I suppose. Um, how, many, yeah. how many attempts did it take you to get to the back, back seat? I didn't, I didn't. Well, I, I had plenty of goes, never got anywhere close. Um, I only ever saw two players uh, make the back seat. One of them was Pat Howard, who was a player coach at the time, and he was really sly the way he did it. So there's a few youngsters that he sent up as as cannon fodder, basically, and he sent them in. And, and I, I can't remember whether I was one of those or at this point I'd, I'd edge my way further to the back, towards the back because I was a bit more experienced. But he sent a few youngsters to the back who were just getting punched left, right, and centre, getting their pants ripped around their head, wedgies galore. And he crawled all the way under the seats without anyone knowing. Uh -huh. He just popped up at the back in the back corner and he was there. So it's the uh -huh. slyest way of doing it. Send in some cannon fodder, then find a way yourself by crawling under the seats so no one could see you. And I'm like, I'm a bit claustrophobic. So crawling under, if you think about a coach. Mass brawl. Yeah, well, a mass brawl's going around you. It's pretty clever, but also, uh, yeah, he got there. And then the other guy that I saw get there was Jim Hamilton, who obviously uh, is a very good friend of mine and, and a fellow podcaster. He's just hard as you like. And I think one day he just managed to fight his way and, and knock a few boys out on the way. <laughs> the less subtle way to get there. Yeah, yeah, there's different ways of doing <laughs> it. And less, I failed. less brains being used. <laughs> yeah, I, I failed at every attempt. I think I probably had about five or six goes and realised I'm never going to make it. So encourage the, encourage the younger lads to do it as I grew older. But regarding that kind of like slight hierarchy back at Leicester, I mean, you were mentioned Martin Johnson a few times. Obviously, he was your 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 captain at Leicester. But then you played 17 times for England, and in your in your second stint was it that Martin Johnson was then the head coach? I mean, what was it like? Did you ever kind of get on that same kind of respect kind of level as Martin Johnson, or was it? 
going into camp then with him, the head coach, and you as a as a flyer half in the England camp, was that also just as intimidating as it was when you were eighteen years yeah, old? Yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, I, I got to know Jono pretty well, having played with him for you know sort of five or six years at Leicester. He was a brilliant bloke. You know, he had a lot of time for everyone. He, you know, very well respected. He was hard as you like on the field, hard as you like off it, but he was a very intelligent man and had a lot of time for anyone that needed it for advice, for, you know, helping them out in any form of, of, of their life, really. So he was a man that everyone respected for what he did as a leader, as a player. Other fans of other clubs might have seen him as a, a bit of a thug at times for stepping over the mark on the field. But that was what made him the best player he was. And ultimately, you know, England's greatest ever captain. So, yeah, when he became head coach, again, it was a, there was a respect thing. I always, you always have respect for your coaches, whoever they are. Uh, it make, makes it a bit easier that you know you, you played with him and you understood him, but also it makes it a bit harder because you you feel that you don't want other people to think that you're only picked because you played with him at Leicester. He, he'd only pick people that he thought deserved it on merit to fit in around how he wanted to play. And um, I think when he picked me, I think there must have been about 16 other fly halves injured, so that's perhaps why I got to call it. But, um, <laughs> so, again, it was a respect thing. Only choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, John, Johnny was injured for a lot of that period. And there, there were periods when Johnny was fit and I was second choice, which was great. But yeah, I mean, Jono is a very intelligent man. He, he, I think he had a bit of a tough ride as an as England coach. If you actually look back on his record, it was pretty good at the time. I think he finished second in Six Nations when Wales were Grand Slam winners. And, you know, ultimately the, the World Cup in 2011 in, in New Zealand was, was his downfall, which perhaps... Uh, yeah, Jono was someone that respected you and, and because he got it as a player he expected people to behave in a way uh, and he treated everyone with respect he, he expected everyone to behave in a way that he would have behaved mm. so he kind of gave him enough rope uh, to do what they want and ultimately they, they probably ended up you know, overstepping the mark and you know, we've seen and it's easy to say this sort of thing if you, when you get knocked out in the quarterfinals against France right mm. um, yeah. So it's easy to then say Gee, they lost because you know the dwarf tossing or you know their man who's jumping into the harbour off a boat and all this stuff and it and it basically looked like they didn't respect Jono, which I'm, I can tell you now everyone yeah. did. And there was the quote in the dressing room, wasn't there, about the, um, the, the how much they, the the pays the payment they were people. Yeah, were, again, yeah. again, that wasn't about Jono. And I think, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, had, had Jono been given time. You know, and it's one thing about being a coach. There's two things that happen. You get the job, and at some point that job ends. You either get sacked or you leave on your own accord. And unfortunately, yeah, the RFU decided it, John Howard had his tenure. Was it too early for him? Probably. Would anyone else turn that opportunity down? And, and knowing the competitor that John o is, that he, he'd want to be England head coach, you know, he certainly thought it was right at the time. And it's a real shame that he's not involved in the game anymore, apart from punditry, because it's a. A super intelligent rugby mind um, and sporting mind that would add a lot of value but then you also sit there and think what Jono has, has been sort of tarnished with with the behaviour of some of the players at the time has affected him and does he need the stress probably not and just looking at the England setup I mean you've obviously played in South Africa and in France just a fairly controversial topic at the moment do you think that the current rules of that English players have to play in the Gallagher Premiership to play for England are correct or do you think they should adapt and change being really honest it's one of those things that when you've played abroad and been picked you know I was picked for England playing in France to breathe and effectively there was there was a few of us that started to go out there and play so myself I was out there Steve Thompson was out there at breathe players started to leave and, and, and go and play abroad for you know people talk about the life experiences it's not it's let's be let's be frank about it you get paid more money to go and do the same job but in different yeah. surroundings now I signed for breathe on two or three times more money than I was on at Leicester. And, and at the time, I wasn't getting picked for England. The, the head coach changes, Jono comes in and he picks me again. So anyone that tries to say, in this day and age, oh, you should just be allowed to go and play wherever, it's a very different landscape now. So the amount of training that England do collectively and on all the kind of rules around the player release from World Rugby uh, in terms of training camps, the RFU pay a lot of money to the clubs in the UK, uh, sorry, in England, to have jurisdiction over their England players in the EPS squad, which means they can get them together for training camps outside of the international windows, and they can basically have the ability to 
see how much rugby they're playing and dictate how much rugby they can play. They can't necessarily pick them and not pick them for their club teams, but they can. The, 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 there's a restriction on how many games they can play. Uh, they, when there's there's rest periods around when they come back from international duty, they have to have certain time off, and that gets factored into their club games. But the RFU pay a lot of money for that. Now, I was part of a kind of revolution where you went and played in France and still got picked for England, but the England coach, Jono, for example, didn't have those uh, rights over me as a player. So you take the Six Nations, for example. The week before the Six Nations, so two weeks prior to the game, so you'd England go away and have a training camp, and we were over in Portugal. I was playing in France. There was a, a game for Brieve on the Saturday. The French club didn't have to release me to go and train there. And Jono phoned me up. He said, look, you're in the squad. Uh, I want you to come train in Portugal for the whole week. So I go to my club in Brieve and I said, Jono, obviously, and Jono did the right thing. He spoke to the club as well. The club's initial reaction was, no, we've got a game on Saturday. You, you've got to play for us. So then I said, look, you know, this is my dream, playing for England. Johnny Wilkinson's injured. Um, there's a chance I might start. Can I go to the Portugal training camp? So we came to an agreement between myself and, and the club uh, that I could go for the first part of the week and then come back to Breathe at the back end of the week to play the game at the weekend. And we were playing cast away. And we get through the training week, first couple of days of training, Jono looks at me and he says, I'm, I'm going to start you next week against Italy. Yeah, I'm going to pick you ahead of Toby Flood. I'm going to pick you ahead of Danny Cipriani. You're, you're starting. I'm like, Jono, mate, that's amazing. Thank you. Where's, where's the fish and chip shop? Let's go and get the fish and chips now. <laughs> um, but then Jono said to me, he said, look, I don't want you to go back to play for your club at your weekend. No other player is doing that. I've got autonomy over what the rest of the squad are doing because they're basically all playing in, in England. So I, they're not going back to their clubs to play for this weekend. Can you ask your club not to play? Because you're going to start for England in the first game of the Six Nations and I don't want you to get injured. I want you to be here preparing the full week with the team. So I phoned up my coach and Breve and the, the chief executive and they both said, no, no, the agreement was you come back. So I went back to Jono and Jono said, that's the agreement you've got. There's no more we can do. You can only ask the question. You have to go back and play. Uh, and, I was, and at that point, I'm like, but Jono, I don't think I want to play. I want to start for England next week. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to get injured. Um, and so it was a bit of a thankless task, really. So I go back and, listen, you, you paid by your club to play. So I go back and I played for Breve. Uh, we played away at Cast. And it, it was the days when at Breve, the home shirt was black, the away shirt was white. It was a late January day. The weather was horrific. The pitch was horrific. I came off without a speck of mud on my white jersey um, because I wanted to avoid contact. Gono so, said to me, you get through the game unscathed, you start the next week. So I played touch rugby the whole time. Uh, and it, didn't, it wasn't perhaps the best thing for, for the club because they, they could see that my mind was, was thinking about next weekend's game when I'm starting for England against Italy at Twickenham. So yeah, in reality, do I agree with... Some people say it's restrictive on players. Uh, I sit there, if, you're, if your dream is to play for England, you know that the best way to do that is to be playing for a premiership club where there's a, there's a clear agreement between the RFU and the premiership clubs around player release. There's no back and forth fighting between clubs and, and country if you're playing away. And off the back of it, you know, you're seeing that these players have successful club and England careers because they're managed well. And, and the, work, the workload on them isn't something that is too much. Now, you, you know, you look at a lot of other players. So take Greg Laidlaw, for example. He's been going back and forth playing for Scotland in the Six Nations. And then on the fallow weekends where there's no Six Nations game, he has to go back and play in France. Whereas, or he had to when he was at Claremont. Whereas the England players or the Scotland players who are contracted to Glasgow or Edinburgh, they don't have to do that. And, and that's, that's something that if you're an England player, you know you want to sign a contract abroad. Yeah. The likelihood is, and no, I don't think anyone's been picked uh, since the rule came in for those. Uh, no, but I think George Cruz is open now. He's kind of he's looking. Like he's going to go to Japan. Yeah, mate. Cruz, Cruz, every player says, hey, oh, I'm not retired." Yeah. From <laughs> yeah. I never, yeah. I never retired from international <laughs> rugby. I just didn't get picked anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but you know, um, if, if 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 it's hard for a player, uh, and this year, this year may be different with the whole Saracen scenario. Yeah. If if they do get relegated, because yeah. there there is chat about ring fencing being back on the table. Yeah. Now, I think it's a bit different playing in Japan to, you know, playing in France where it's a one hour, uh, hour and a half flight or whatever. It, mm. I, I think it's a, you know, it's going to be very difficult. And it's not like we're short of second rows. You know, you've got yeah. some quality players. Obviously, Maratoji's our first choice. You've got Joe Launchbury. You've got Charlie Yule's played a bit in the Six Nations. There's a number of players where 
you know, Courtney Laws could play there. We're not short there, so I think it's it could yeah. be pretty tough for, for Crusoe. But hey, it's Eddie Jones in charge, so anything can happen, right? Exactly. So you just mentioned that um, ring fencing could potentially be an option. Do you do you think this is an actual? You know, could make sense for the long term of, um, of of rugby. Yeah, I think if you'd have asked me the question three or four months ago, I'd have said absolutely not, because I think you look at leagues around the world that don't have a uh, the ability to get promoted, so no promotion relegation in them. The Guinness Pro 14 Super Rugby. Um, I played in Super Rugby where there's no relegation, so towards the back end of the season when you're playing games that are dead rubber, no one's coming to watch it. The commerciality of it isn't great because no one wants to watch a game with with two teams that can't make the quarterfinals or semi-finals or whatever the system is. And there's no relegation, so the actual interest levels dip towards the back end of the season. And, you know, as a player, does that become less motivating? Well, if you know you've got nothing to play for, everyone would say, no, you should be driven to play every game to the best of your ability. But emotional energy doesn't work that way. So the spectacle doesn't become as good if there's not something sort of riding on a game. So four months ago, I'd have been dead set against it. And I think the necessity of, of the, the story around Exeter Chiefs, who 10 years ago or so got promoted into the Premiership and look at them now, they're an absolute force. By ring fencing, you're absolutely closing off those dreams of, of certain clubs like Exeter could be. Because you yourself, you played for Worcester down in the, in the Championship, didn't you? And like, yeah. I mean, these Championship teams, they, they had that, was it 50%? budget cut from the RFU just before the coronavirus hit I mean you're not kind of just literally tying the noose around their neck and like they're going to yeah, gonna... uh, yeah I think you are a little bit I, I, I suppose I suppose the issue with it is l- listen the game isn't sustainable let's let's be honest let's be frank the game of rugby currently as it stands is not sustainable and you know premiership clubs collectively lost 48 million quid uh, in 2018 so they're relying on benefactors to keep the game afloat now you know you work in business if, you, if your company's losing on average 4 million quid a year for five years, you go and bust, you know, unless you've got someone just throwing money at you for no reason, whatever the company is. And that's reality. So part of the the chat around ring fencing originally was to allow competition and, and allow clubs to have something on every game and, and there'd be a clear, defined map of a club wanting to grow into an extra Chiefs. But now I think you look at it and it's going to cost a hell of a lot of money. And, and it's not just 10 million quid. It's probably closer to 30, 40, 50 million quid. Yeah. To be able to try and compete in the Premiership, i.e., your ground is up to scratch, your training facilities, your your squad, and there's a lot more than just the 15 players that go out there every week, and it's a huge amount of money on that. So sustainability is a massive thing. Uh, championship clubs, some of them don't have the desire to get to the Premiership. They're happy mm. where they're at because they don't want to go bust. They know that they look at a London Welsh. London Welsh won the Championship playoffs against Bristol a few years ago, and, and ironically, Bristol are the richest club in. In, in the UK at the minute with their owner Steve Lansdowne and that effectively that club went bust because they were writing checks they couldn't afford now yeah. you know they didn't have the commercial nous and, and they didn't have the ability to monetize anything to but they spent money they didn't have they end up going bust and that's what some of the championship clubs don't want they rely on the funding to, to stay alive and, and this is where you look at wages of, of rugby players and the stark reality of a full-time Premiership professional rugby player against a full-time Championship rugby player. And those Championship rugby players, the dream is to become, obviously, a Premiership rugby player, but the the absolute nightmare is these Championship clubs can't afford to make them full-time players because, you know, they haven't got the funds in the business, they're not profitable, they're, you know, they're relying, again, one benefactor to pay everyone's wages, which isn't a sustainable business model. So uh, that's that would have been my argument before uh, yeah. around... Uh, ring fencing I was against it because of the dream but now you look at it and the the pandemic we're in has has shown the stark reality of finances and rugby and there's a bigger picture here now Saracens have you know done what they've done around the salary cap recently over the last six years and and there's they've, they've had their punishment for it and some people will be dead set that they need to have a year in the championship to have their punishment and win the championship and then bounce back up but the reality of it is Premiership Rugby is struggling financially across all the clubs because if you were losing on average £4 million per club last year or, or the last financial year that all, all the accounts got published on, then you added now the, the pandemic of no rugby mm-hmm. being played for three months, if not longer. There's no, there's going to be no bums on seats money. There's sponsorship money that might need to pay back. There's TV revenue deals that you know might not, not look as good as they were going to look 
in the future and, and that, those losses are going to become even greater so there is a need for perhaps stability and perhaps an argument for ring fence in the premiership and, and that's something that the RFU need to to make the decision on yeah and then the premiership clubs need to ratify it if that is the case but I, th- I think the pandemic has, has, has kind of parked Saracen's issues with, with salary cap away from rugby and, and the light is firmly shining on the finances and the sustainability of the game and, and the fact that probably we need Saracens in the Premiership as uh, you know an entity that we can you know commercialise as well. Sure, because there has been that increased movement of people who are supporting the ring fencing in the domestic kind of um, league, but uh, but then internationally there's been a lot of a lot of chat. I mean, obviously Bill Bowman's just been re-elected as um, as chairman. I mean, there's been a lot of conversations about how they need to be more inclusive of lesser kind of nations. So, do you think almost potentially ring fence the domestic league, but then releasing or non ring fencing like the Six Nations as such to kind of give the likes of Georgia and like Portugal kind of the chance to, to grow the game? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? You, you, you know, people are saying, as you've said, domestically, ring fencing is the best way forward, but internationally, we need to promote, you know, countries and, you know, share the wealth more and, you know, align it where you can get promoted into the Six Nations. But I've always... I'm, I've always been an advocate of there should be some sort of promotion and relegation in in, in the Premiership. Uh, the Six Nations has been a close shot for years now. It was the Four Nations, then the Five Nations, then the Six Nations. It was probably the Two Nations in 1900s or whatever. Who knows? Um, <laughs> so, but it, ha- but it, has, it has to evolve. Yeah, I'd probably say a straight promotion relegation battle. And the argument is Italy, I don't think they've won a, a game in the Six Nations for a couple of years. I don't know the exact stat on it, but it's it's coming up to... I'm sure I read somewhere it's about 20 games or something now that perhaps they haven't won for. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it's it's hardly a success story. Now, some people are saying they should just kick Italy out because they don't deserve to be in the Six Nations. Other people are saying that there should be a playoff between whoever finishes bottom uh, of the Six Nations and whoever wins the B Six Nations, which you know has been Georgia, it has been Romania, you know, and other countries would have that desire to perhaps have a shot at playing the Six Nations because of the commerciality of it. But just just imagine though. Uh, and this is where the disparity between what are the supposed tier one nations and tier two nations has grown even bigger because there isn't that flow. You know, imagine Romania going into the Six Nations and playing England at Twickenham. Last time Romania played England at Twickenham, it was 147 points or something. So, so we need to give them the ability to actually yeah. kind of give them the option because, I mean, yeah. looking back on you said about the club games being ring-fenced, I mean, if I'm personally, I'm a big, massive rugby fan, but watching like a Scotland against Italy, it's just <laughs> it's just a bit of a, a dead rubber. But if there's Scotland, Italy, but who's potentially going to be in this playoff or whatever the system is against Romania, Georgia, just every single game is suddenly you know, vital and um, it does give the, in- it incentivizes the likes of Georgia, Romania to increase their infrastructure. And Yeah, no, I, com- I completely agree. And I think that the point on it that I'm perhaps trying to make is the Six Nations are trying to hold on to the commerciality of it. So, for example, you, you, you mentioned there, there's nothing on, a lot of the time there's nothing on a Scotland-Italy game except for who's going to get the wooden spoon. And I joke about that because Scotland, are, you know, I give, I give Jim Hamilton a load of stuff about that. But the reality of it, if there was a playoff game, there would be more on it, which would drive more interest. But mm. then the following year, if Romania get promoted, what's the commerciality of England-Romania at Twickenham? You know, you, England are going to look at it and go, we're going to have to sell tickets for 30 quid as opposed to a 70 quid ticket for England-Wales or whatever. And that's, that's where the Six Nations are coming from. Are they thinking there's going to be a massive loss of revenue if, if the games are less attractive? But also you've then got the balance of have we got a responsibility to help these supposed tier two nations come up and, and have the opportunity? So I'm always, uh, you know, I've been an advocate of there should be some playoff system in place to start off with. Again, the top versus the bottom. A straight promotion relegation, perhaps we're not at that level yet, but there does need to be an opportunity. and. Um, you know, it's quite interesting, isn't it, the way you put it? People are talking about domestic leagues, ring fence in it, but then they're arguing against that at international level, which, you know, it, 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 that's kind of rugby for you. It, it seems <laughs> like rugby, you've got different people and they're all protecting their own interests, which isn't necessarily for the good of the growth of the global game, if I can get those words out, more uh, sort of self-interest around, you know, what the Six Nations countries will perhaps get if they keep themselves strongly together as opposed to diluting it with or what they see as diluting it with other countries coming into it. 
And looking at the international game and England specifically and the World Cup in t- 2023, what, what are your predictions for England? Do you think we will be able to go all the way or do you reckon we'll fall at one of the last to um, I'm, I, Listen, I, I'm, I'm a very passionate English fan. You know, I'm, I'm very patriotic. I'm England through and through. And, you know, I have had issues with what Eddie Jones has said and done over the years. You know, we're in the press and, and you have to hold him to task with certain things that you disagree with and you have to pat him on the back for things that he's done well and I think if you'd have said to us and we kind of sit here now you know having seen the the World Cup in Japan a year before that World Cup if you'd have said we'd have got to the World Cup final we'd have all been celebrating saying that's a great success now there's that tinge of frustration because we beat the All Blacks in the semi-final and then we didn't perform in the final against South Africa and South Africa were the better team comfortably and deserve to be winners. But there's that little feeling as an England fan, and I'm sure even more so as an England player for the guys that are in that squad of the frustration of what could have been. So that sort of harnesses itself in terms of, you'd hope, a lot of frustration that they know that they can become the best team in the world. Uh, listen, the World Cup's a long, a long way away. The age profile of our squad is fantastic. So, you know, Maratoji, you know, all the guys, that there won't be many in that squad that started the game, the World Cup final, that won't be around for the, the, the next World Cup. You need to look at other positions, so you probably need to look at Scrum Half as somewhere to develop someone. We had yeah. Jack Maunder on the podcast, who's, um, who's a hopeful for yeah, the Yeah, good next player, very good player, very good player. You know, so, so Ben Young's, I think he's turned 30. He will perhaps still be around, but whoever's been second choice, so, you know, at the World Cup, obviously it was Willie Hines. Prior to that, it was Danny Kier. They're not going to be around in the next World Cup, more than likely. So, you know, you have to start promoting there. You know, you look at, Loose head prop is Mako Vinopola still be going? They're going to be going in three years. You'd hope so. You know, Joe Marler probably not. So you start looking at squad involvement, and I think Eddie Jones did he say something like uh, there'll be thirty percent. Thirty percent, yeah, it was thirty yeah, percent um, of, of of the squad will be different, and and that's the evolution of and the strength of the Premiership, where we have to have these players here, where he can help develop them to get to the stage of winning the World Cup. And you know, England certainly will be one of the main favourites. New Zealand will always be there. France are the dark horses because it's in their country. You know, you've seen a massive change in them with a change in management. Sean Edwards will have a massive impact. They've got a lot of quality young players. They've won two Junior World Cups recently, which means that those young players are the best players for their age at the time. And then it's all about the coaches developing them into being a, a well-beaten team. In, we, in we all know about France, though, don't we? I mean, oh, we do. I, we do I, they're definitely, they've, they're performing they're the underdogs. But we saw in the Six Nations, didn't we? With massive underdogs against the best in the world England and then um, they kind of everyone's looking like Grand Slam and then they suddenly um, yeah they lose to Scotland don't they and they will there's going to be four years build up of them going into it now kind of thinking that they might be the favourites um, not favourites but you know that they got the, a, yeah. a good chance I mean surely, I they, surely, choke. surely they choke again <laughs> I hope so. surely they will surely <laughs> But yeah, Eddie Jones obviously doesn't he doesn't uh, fail to um to surprise us all because last World Cup building into it, everyone kind of thought, you know, they had the experienced players like the Rob Shaws, Haskells, all kind of uh, all lined up and everyone thought they were gonna be um the prominent features. But um who knows what they're gonna do. And especially I think after after Eddie Jones's World Cup defeat final against England in uh, two thousand and three, he was planned on staying on for four more years after that for Australia. I think he got cut after two years because um there's the burnout of the players, but he seems to think from what he's seen so far, the Six Nations, the players are still very, very motivated. Can we just move on to your your current kind of life? So you've obviously your you do your podcast with the Jim Hamilton, the rugby pods, do a bit of punditry for BT Sports, but you also you've uh, mentioned you um you're working in the city a little bit. I mean, a lot of our listeners they are a year or two into their into their city life in London. Do you have any um? Any advice for these um, these young guys in their in their twenties looking looking to make it in the in the big smoke? Um, yeah, I think it's very different from at my age. I, I just turned forty on lockdown, so uh, you know, uh, I know I don't look that old anymore. But <laughs> I, trust me. But it's, I think for me coming to the end of my rugby career, what I tried to do was throw myself into any opportunity that was out there. So I spent a lot of time learning about foreign exchange, and it started with me. Obviously, we mentioned it before. I played abroad, I played in France, and I played in South Africa. So when you've earned your own money abroad and you're trying to bring it back to England, it's something that you have to take interest in because it can have massive fluctuations on how many pounds you end up in your bank account with. So that's how the interest came from me. And and then I met some people in the industry and ended up uh, meeting the CEO of Money Court, Mark Horgan. And my sort of job evolved from there, really. 
And uh, you know, my role is is trying to bring on as much new business as possible through my contacts, through people that I know, trying to lean on rugby connections, shall we say. Uh, and that's not rugby clubs, for example. I, I try and steer clear of, of rugby clubs. What I'm saying is, it's people that I know throughout rugby. It's, you know, because I played international rugby and because I played in the Premiership and the various different clubs, it allows me to get a door slightly ajar and slightly open. And then I've got to try and sell our product as we all do as sales people. Uh, as best you can to show the value that our company can add to another company. Now, to the youngsters out there, it's 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 graft. It's hard work. Yeah, you know, you're going to get a lot of knockbacks. I, I do all the time now. Um, you know, I get clients coming back to me saying, "I'm I'm not going to leave my current provider. I'm going to stay with them. Uh, it's nice talking to you, but I'm not bothered." And and that there, it's how you handle that kind of emotional ups and downs around success and 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 failure. And I, I think. You know, there's always pressure on people to deliver in a sales role. There's always pressure on managers to deliver pipelines, to deliver targets, etc. In whatever industry you're in, and it's it's trying to map out how you can get to those targets, or have a clear vision of of how you see your job, where your strengths are, uh, where the opportunities are to to try and get towards that target. Because a lot of businesses now are target driven, aren't they? So it's it's being able to celebrate successes, but also not take a complete kick in the stomach when you're not having success and keep believing in what you're doing. And part of it, yes, listen, there's parts of my job that I don't enjoy that much. There's parts of it that I love and I don't enjoy getting knocked back um, from, from a client that says, actually, I'm not going to trade with you. I'm going to go elsewhere or, you know, actually it's not going to happen. But I love you know, onboarding a client, helping them out and going through their whole process with them to, to, for them to see the benefit of 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 our expertise and, and what we do now, uh, with, with the help of Guinness along the way, to to, to well, yeah, I'm, maybe I'm, a game uh, of golf as well. Yeah, but you know, it, and sometimes that works. But with other clients, yeah, they actually don't, they actually don't want to play golf with you. They don't, they don't want to drink. <laughs> with the world we live in now, there's a lot less of that than you'd actually think. And I think the reality of it is, for the, for the youngsters, it's. It, it, I suppose it's like when I was a, a young player at Leicester, you have to go and work as hard as you can to earn the respect and, and start to make strides. It's not going to be handed to you and it's not going to be handed to me in, in the FX world. You know, I have to go out and work to get my leads, to get my accounts open, to, you know, to bring revenue into the business. Now, it's the same in any, any walk of life. You, you can't walk into a job and, and expect everything just to be handed to you on a plate. You have to work for it. And, you know, there are some tough times, you know, you're in the office long hours at times, you're, you know, you're at a client event where you don't perhaps want to be, but you, you know you have to be at that event. You have to be talking to people perhaps you don't want to talk to, and you know you might personally not be in a great mood, but you have to put on this happy persona that you really want to win business. And, and that's yeah. you know, it, 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 a lot of it is is around acting and you know trying to better yourself by being able to be someone who perhaps you don't want to be that day to win a deal. Um, or to you know to win business or to build a relationship with someone. Um, is, that like, is that like when you're playing back at Breve and you're acting um, not to get tackled too too much? Exactly. That didn't look right on me. But <laughs> you, you, take, you take that as an example, playing in Breve. Yeah. And, and when I went over there, I spoke to a few players that had played in France before and I said, tell me about it. You know, I know the premiership like the back of my hand. I can go to any premiership club and at some point you can fit in because everyone speaks English and, you know, you know how it was. And I spoke to a few players and Tim Stimson was a, a good friend of mine from my days back in Leicester. Yeah, he was a bit of a mentor for me as a youngster and he'd gone and played in Perpignan. And he said, whatever you do, he said, don't worry about rugby to start off with. He said, you, you're good at that. You're good at rugby. They've signed you because you're good at rugby. He said, what you need to do is earn the respect to the French players, the French coaches, the French supporters. They're all French people. If you go and immerse yourself in the the culture and in the environment, learn the language as best you can. You're never going to get it all right, but if you're seen to be making that effort, they're going to accept you more and quicker. And it becomes it becomes easier for you in that transition. And that's the same in any walk of life. You know, you go and earn your respect by fitting into a culture and understanding the culture. You might not want to. You know, I used to get really frustrated in France. I'd you know, we finished training on you know, for lunch, and I'd think, right, I need to go to the bank, or I need to go to the post office. I need to. Go. I'd drive to the post office, and it'd be closed for lunch. And I'm sat there going, this doesn't happen in England. What's going on? Yeah. And you, but you have to become used to it. And the amount of times I'd drive, I'd, I'd, I'd think, right, I finished training, I need to go and do that. I'd drive there, and I'd know it'd be closed, but I'd still go thinking it might not be. Um, but it's their culture, so you have to, and you can't beat the culture, so you have to join it. Um, and I think that's, 
you know, that's a, a big thing and a, a big thing for the youngsters that are, you know, following the city dream. There's a lot of hard work along the way to get your rewards later in life. And, you know, sometimes you have to just keep sticking at it, working hard, keep making those calls, keep pushing clients. Uh, and you're going to get a lot of knockbacks along the way. Let's not beat around the bush. You know, nothing's easy in life and nothing's given to us for free. So it's about persistence. And one of my old colleagues, old teammates, a young man called Ollie Frost, who played at Leicester Tiger, uh, sorry, who played at Worcester Warriors with me, an unknown, not many people would have known him, but his favourite saying, was persistence beats resistance. Um, and I still love that to this day. <laughs> there we go. It's, um, it's used in very many uh, different walks of life. Yeah, you just have to keep plugging away and, and, and keep working hard. And hopefully, if you're doing something that you can see and you've got a vision of, of where you want to get to, um, if you haven't got a game plan, then you're not going to win. But if you've got a vision of where you see yourself in five years' time and, and set goals to get there, then um, yeah, that's the best advice I can probably give. Amazing. Well, thanks for that um, advice to our listeners. and. Thanks for the um, the kind of insight you've given us. But we'd like to finish the S Word podcast with just a quick 10 quick fire questions, if that's all right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've gotten them all lined up. And um, so um, we'll have a go. But um, are you ready? Yeah. All good. Okay. Best player to go for a pint with? Oh, uh, right now, it'd have to be Jim Hamilton. He's my best mate. Favorite European city? Uh, favorite European city? Um, Quinta de Lago, if that is a city in Portugal. For the golf. For the golf. Most, oh, yeah. tal- most talented player you've ever played with? Uh, Jordan Murphy. Favourite London tube stop? Marleybone, because it's nearly home. <laughs> <laughs> best rugby pundit? Uh, best rugby pundit. Do you know what? People, he divides opinion. Uh, Austin Healy. Most intimidating player to play against? Most intimidating. I played against Inga Twigamala when I was a 19-year-old um, <laughs> on a cold, wet night up in Newcastle. He was inside centre. I was fly half. I was about 85 kilos at the time. He was about 120, and he made my life hell. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite Sunday roast meat? Beef. Who had a better career, yourself or Jim Hamilton? No question, myself. Most exciting young player currently? Most exciting young player currently, uh, Lewis Rees Zamet. And um, best city to go for a night out? London. It's got to be in there. Perfect. Well, yeah, thanks for that. And the, the final, final thing we'd like to just ask our guest is, is there anyone which comes to mind who um, you'd like to nominate to potentially might be good for another episode of the S Word podcast? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously having played with a load of different sports people, most people would think I'd just nominate another rugby player. but I grew up playing a lot of cricket and cricket was a game I still love now and, and could have perhaps turned professional with back in the day in my Warwickshire schoolboy days. And I had the privilege of captaining a young Ian Bell as Warwickshire school's captain. He played, I think he played two years up. So he was 14, I was 16, I was his captain. Uh, and he's gone on to be a multiple Ashes winner. So um, yeah, I'd nominate... Incredible. He's had an amazing career. He's a great bloke. Um, I'd nominate Ian Bell. Well, well, we'll ask him if um, your if your professional cricket ambitions were were true as well at the same time. Well, we'll um, find out. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, it's that long ago. I'm, that's twenty five years ago. You'll probably forget. Uh, <laughs> but um, I was good. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Andy, for coming on, and um, best of luck with everything. Yeah, no problems. Cheers, guys. Great Thank to be you. on. We hope you all enjoyed that chat with Andy. Please feel free to subscribe, leave a review, to stay up to date with the S Word podcast. 50 metres to go for Great Britain. Bradley Wiggins looks on. He was part of the Olympic triumph four years ago. They've lost a rider. They won't care because they're going back to back as Olympic champions. Fantastic performance and a new world record. 351.659. They've got it again. Team GB, absolutely superb.